Well, let's open our Bibles, if you brought a Bible with you, some form, Hebrews, and chapter 5 this morning. So find your place there. If you don't have a Bible with you, we'll, we'll put these words up in a little bit on the screen. Hebrews chapter 5. We have a great high priest. We have a great high priest. I just wonder this morning, how does that statement land on you this morning? How does it affect you? How does it communicate to you? What is your reaction to such a statement? We have a great high priest. Maybe it sounds foreign foreign. I don't even know what that means. Or archaic, kind of medieval. We don't live in a culture with priest and priesthood. It's not our daily experience. So this may just sound like some foreign or ancient artifact. Or maybe, maybe it sounds irrelevant, like Am I supposed to care about that? Is that supposed to mean something, that I have a great high priest? Why, why should I care if we have a great high priest or not? It just seems so disconnected to my world, the world I live in every day. Maybe it just sounds churchy. <laughs> I don't think that's a word, but... Churchy, you know, you know what I mean when I say that word. There's church words we use, right? Priest, priesthood, those, that's those things in the church that you talk about. One of those words we hear in church. I know it's supposed to be important, but I'm really not sure why. How do we react when we hear that statement? Now, it may surprise us to learn that this statement we have a great high priest, this truth is the very heart of this book that we are studying in the Bible that's called the book of Hebrews. That is his main point in this letter. This is his central declaration that he thinks is very, very good news. We have a great high priest. And over these next many chapters, in the book of Hebrews, he will show us the meaning and the precious value of this truth. And so I hope over these weeks, Lord willing, and months as we look at this, that it will become, if it's not already, it will become very precious to you, to us Gentiles, <laughs> so removed from this culture of Hebrews, to us 21st century types, that this truth, though may be foreign to us, will just become very precious. Now, I want to give us, as we launch into this part of Hebrews, just some orientation as to why this should begin to sound really precious. We first read this statement, or he first made this statement at the end of chapter 4. I'm going to put these verses up on the screen so you can see them again. We, we, we considered these last Sunday, but here's where we first heard this statement about 
the high priest. Chapter 4, verse 14. Let me read those verses again. Since then, here it is, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, that's who it is, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us, therefore, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. This is where he declares it. We have a great high priest. Who is that? It's Jesus the Son of God. And He's not only a great high priest, but we learned last week, He's a sympathetic high priest through whom we can, with confidence this morning, draw near to God to find mercy and grace to help in time of need. So He's beginning to explain and show us why this is such a precious truth. But just to help orient us a little bit, because we don't have all the advantages that his original readers do being steeped in a Hebrew culture, just look at those words in verse 16. I underlined them there. Let us draw near. It's just one word. It's the word approach. Let us approach God. Approach God. That is almost unthinkable if we understand who God is, that we could ever imagine or dare to approach Him, to draw near. Sinful human beings, all of us, cannot draw near to God who is utterly holy. Our God is a consuming fire. You know where that's from? The book of Hebrews, chapter 12. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You know where that's at? Hebrews, chapter 10. Hmm. No man, God said to Moses, no man can see my face and live. It's incompatible. Sinful human beings, the presence of God who is utterly holy is incompatible. Do you recall that event in the Old Testament? We've been seeing some of it in the book of Hebrews when God came down on Mount Sinai. The great revelation that he's going to give to Moses on Mount Sinai. He came down to enter into a covenant with his people that he just rescued out of Egypt. And he's going to enter a covenant by giving the law. Do you remember that scene? It's an absolutely terrifying scene. It is meant to be terrifying. That whole storm on the mountain and clouds and thick darkness there. The people were terrified. Moses was terrified. God said, put a barrier around the mountain, because even if they touch the mountain, they will die. You don't, you don't approach him. You don't approach him. Now, the paradox, I think, of that great event is that God is coming 
to enter into a covenant and to dwell with his people. It's the point of that whole covenant. He's going to dwell in this form symbolically through a tabernacle. He's going to dwell in there, which is very precarious. God, the Holy, is going to dwell with his people. How is that going to happen? Well, it's at that very point in the story of the Bible that he institutes the priesthood. The high priesthood, the priesthood. He sets apart one tribe and then one family within a tribe to function as priest, most notably a high priest, whom God will designate as holy in order to represent the people. People are not going to approach God. He will designate someone, symbolically set them apart as holy, so that they may approach God on behalf of the people. That's what a priest is. It's at that point in the story that God institutes what we call the priesthood. And he institutes a detailed, elaborate system of sacrifices and offerings by the priest, both for atonement, forgiveness, and to approach God. I like this, I'll put up this little rendering, this drawing here on the screen of maybe, maybe it would have been like this. Chris told me they wouldn't have had streets that nice and neat like that, but maybe they did. But you have, what you have in the center there is the tabernacle. And I love this image, if you can picture it, because it, it communicates two things. God is in our midst. God is dwelling with us. He's at the center of the camp. Right? That's how they aligned. They had a whole system of how they lined up and camped. And God was at the center of the camp. And the other thing, he is separate. Like, you're, you're not going to go in there and live. And so, yes, he's dwelling, but there's a separation. And you can't see it on the screen. It's kind of small, but there's a few people inside there, and they're the priest. They're the priest who are going to represent the people in the approach to God with sacrifices. That's what they're doing there. Sacrifices both for atonement and for worship and the approach of God. And only if you see the tent in the middle, and we know that tent is divided into two parts, the holy place and the most holy place, and in that most holy place in the tent where you see that glory kind of glory coming down into the tent is, the, is where God dwells in this unique form over the Ark of the Covenant, the atonement cover, and those cherubim over that. And it was covered with a veil so that no one, no one can even see in there. Even the ordinary priest, they can't go in there. But once a year, the high priest, only once a year, could, could enter behind the veil, taking blood to sprinkle on the top of that Ark of the Covenant, that atonement covered, a sprinkle blood to make atonement and then get out. And then next year, come back again. And that was it. That was your access, so to speak, approach to God. When the writer of Hebrews announces to us, to his readers, we have a great high priest who has entered in to the very presence of God for us once. And he didn't get out. He 
sat down. <laughs> Always there for us. What, what do you think the response, the reaction of these readers would have been? These original readers, as they, they know this whole imagery, they live this every day, whether it was tabernacle or temple, they live this. What would their response would be? Well, I think probably their response is, is maybe twofold. One, their hearts would soar with delight. We have a final great high priest. We don't need to do this anymore. We have access to God perfectly through one who has made perfect atonement. So I think their hearts would soar. They would feel this, and that's what I'm hoping will happen to us as we study the letter to the Hebrews. But I think the other response would be, how can this be? How can it be? How can Jesus be our final great high priest? How, how does he relate to that God-established priesthood back in the book of Exodus through Aaron? How does Jesus connect? What, what biblical authority is there for his priesthood? He is not from Aaron. It's a lie. He's not a descendant. He's not of the tribe of Levi. How can this be? So, chapter 5, Hebrews, he begins to explain the high priesthood of Jesus. I'm very thankful for this because he's going to explain some things that maybe us 21st century dwellers here and Gentiles we don't connect to as well. So he's going to help explain it at least a little bit for us, wanting to show us how Jesus is this final high priest. Look at chapter 5. I'm going to read it. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10, so you can follow there. But again, just notice the first word, for, for every high priest. He's, going to, he's just extending his discussion of Jesus as the high priest that he introduced there in verses 14 through 16 of chapter 4, and he's going to show how he is truly and uniquely our sympathetic high priest. That's what he's going to show us, and he's going to do it over many chapters. It's great, great detail. Let me read verses 1 through 10 this morning just so we get his introduction into explaining how Jesus is the high priest. Verse 1, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins, as for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you, just as he says in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, when he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and who was heard because of his piety. 
Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And then he'll say in verse 11, concerning him, we have much to say. Oh, he does have much to say. But he's going to stop at that point. Let's stop. Let's just stop right there. The new high priest and the old. The new high priest and the old. That's the heading here. This, this paragraph I just read to you, verses 1 through 10, is clearly divided into two parts. Really easy to see. Verses 1 through 4 describes the Old Testament high priest. The Old Testament high priesthood. He just gives descriptions and qualifications of the Old Testament high priest. That's verses 1 through 4. Then verses 5 through 10 is Christ high priesthood. So first Old Testament priesthood, then Christ high priesthood. And here, here's the one-line summary of verses 1 through 10. This is what he's doing, I should say. It's, it's just this deliberate comparison. He compares and contrasts the Old Testament high priesthood with Christ high priesthood. The first, the Old Testament, prefigures and is surpassed by the second. So in this paragraph, he's comparing and contrasting. Remember doing that in school? Compare and contrast, right? Well, that's what he does here in a very uh, elegant way. We'll see it more next week. He's comparing and contrasting. He's starting with just the general description and qualifications of Old Testament high priest, according to the order of Aaron. And then he's going to compare and contrast that with Christ. And he's going to show us that that first one in the Old Testament is, is just prefiguring. It's a type of Christ, and Christ, high priesthood, surpasses, surpasses what was in the Old Testament. It's much better. It's similar, yet greater. So that's the paragraph. Now this morning, we'll, just go, we'll look at the first part, okay? Uh, the Old Testament, the old part, the Old Testament description, and then Lord willing, next week we'll come back and look at the second part, Christ, Christ priesthood compared and contrasted with the old. So I want us to look here, just at the description qualifications of the Old Testament high priest, but I want, as I do that, I want to show you how he's setting up a contrast with Christ high priesthood, both a comparison and contrast with Christ high priesthood. So I'm going to show us that, and then we'll see the substance of it next Sunday, Lord willing. He gives four, I'll highlight, four descriptions, qualifications of the Old Testament high priest. And this is really helpful, again, for us Gentiles, right? For us who don't live in the world of priest, who don't live in this world of temple and tabernacle and priest, this just helps orient us. This is what a priest is. This is what you need to know. This is what the high priesthood of the Old Testament that God established is so that you understand who Jesus is. So here's four. Here's number one. His representation. By his I'm referring firstly to the Old Testament high priest. And then it will connect to Christ, but Christ will be superior. It will compare and contrast to Christ. So I'll try to do that each time. His representation, the high priest. First, he is appointed 
to represent the people before God with prescribed offerings for sin. He is appointed, the priest is, to represent the people. Here's his role. Before God with prescribed offerings for sin. You see it there in verse 1? You just follow his line of thought as he describes it. For every high priest taken from among men, and here he just means humanity, so he's not thinking of the male character of the high priest, though that was true. Here he's just thinking he's taken from people (laughs) and is appointed on behalf of men, behalf of people, in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. So he's appointed, you see that phrase, on behalf of human beings. That's representation. That's where I get this word. He represents. He's taken from the people, obviously. He's not an angel. He's one of the people. He's taken from the people, and he's taken to represent on behalf of the people before God. So he's on behalf of people. That's why in the Old Testament, the high priest, as he dressed, say more later about his symbolic way that he dressed, everything had a meaning, but he wore that breastplate that had all the tribes of Israel, right, inscribed on his breast. He was bringing the people before God. He was representing the people in the approach to God. You see it there? In things pertaining to God. That's what we're talking about. Relationship to God. The priest role is in relation to God. Specifically, what God prescribed him to do. And the most essential role in his representation is making offerings, both gifts and offering, both gifts and sacrifice for sin. And you have various ones, right? Read the book of Leviticus. You have different kinds of gifts. It could be grain, cereal gifts, you had sacrifices, but all that had to do with sin, making atonement, covering for sin, because that, that is the chief issue in an approach to God by sinful human beings. Atonement. So that rings all through the Old Testament priesthood to make atonement for, covering for, so that we'll be at one meant, at one with God, reconciled. And God made a way. So he not only makes a priesthood, but he prescribes the exact offerings that they were to offer. They just didn't invent things. I think it would be good to do that. I think God would like this. He wrote it down in precise. Read the book of Leviticus. It's really good. It's really detailed. Exactly what you will offer to the Lord. Do you remember, again, back to that scene when he first instituted the priesthood with Aaron? He chose Aaron and Aaron's sons and Aaron's family, and he consecrating them as a whole elaborate ceremony to set them apart, the priest and the offerings. And then two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, do you remember these guys? First day, they thought, oh, we'll, we'll do it our way. We'll, we'll, we'll just bring what we think is best. The Bible called it strange fire. <laughs> that is what the Lord didn't prescribe. And it says fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them and they died. First day of the priesthood. 
What a sobering effect on the people. Again, who's, who will approach him? Well, God will institute the priesthood and the prescribed offerings. They gave gifts and sacrifices for sin. So this is the most basic role of the priest. They represent the people before God, the approach to God in both worship and atonement. Now, let's compare and contrast with Christ because he's, he's setting us up for this comparison and contrast with Jesus. So let me note this. We'll see more of this next week, but I want to give you hints to it. Christ fully identifies with us as a man, but was not merely, quote, taken from among men. He is like the high priest, but he's different, superior. So if you look at chapter 5, verse 1, he says, every high priest is taken from among mankind, humanity. Now, why would he say that? I mean, that's the most obvious thing. That's superfluous. You have no reason to say the high priest must be a human being, right? Of course he is. Where else are you going to get a priest from? Why is he saying that? He's, he's trying to connect to the similarity with Christ. So he's going to go on to say that he was fully human. If that's a requirement for a priest, if he's going to represent people, he has to be a person, a human being, because with Christ, he fully identifies with us as a man. So he is qualified to represent us. And yet, he's not merely taken from among men. Remember, he's already said this back in chapter 2 when he just started to introduce the priesthood. He said he, he had to be made like us. Right back in chapter 2, since children, you and I share in flesh and blood, he likewise also partook of the same. He had to become like us fully. So he wasn't just taken from among us, he became one of us. That's his distinction. God, God didn't simply select and appoint a better man than Aaron. You know, found this man, Jesus. That's how some people think of Jesus. Like, this man, Jesus, he was, lived a really good life, and God had favor on him and said, I'll, I think I'll choose you to be my son. I'll adopt you and have you fulfill this role. That's not what God did. We'll see as we go on in this text, it's from all eternity that God's plan is for him to come as priest, to become one of us. So Christ did. He fully identifies with us, and yet he is not simply from amongst us. So that's first, the high priest representation. Number two, second description qualification, his relation to human weakness. His relation to human weakness. So he goes on, verse 2, you can read it. He, speaking of the high priest, can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness. I'd say it like this. As one, quote, clothed with weakness, he, the high priest, can deal gently with sinners like himself. That's the point of verse 2. As one clothed with weakness, he says he can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since because he himself also is, it's literally the word 
clothed or burdened with weakness. Now, the weakness he's referring to is both human frailty and sinful weakness. Sinful weakness. He's a fellow sinner. The high priest, yes, was set apart and was, quote, ordained as holy, symbolically, and yet, he's still a sinner, right? Just one of the people. So his weakness, he's beset with weaknesses, both just the human condition and frailty, but also sinful weakness. So he can identify, he says, with the ignorant and misguided. Just thinking one group of people. The ignorant and misguided. Which is just a way of saying people. (laughs) Or God's people under the old covenant. I mean, that's just the ignorant and those going astray. That's the general description of the people of God under the Old Testament. Not necessarily those that are just apostatizing, but, but sinning. Sinning. That's why there's a priest. And this priest is able to relate. You see the word? He's able to deal gently with this group because he's one of the group. Because he has the same weakness. He's able to deal gently. Now, literally, that, that word is just means to restrain anger. He's, he's able to restrain anger. It's one of these words built off of that word pathos. The word pathos means suffering. Metriopatheo. It's a restraint, a measuring of emotion or a measuring of anger. He's able to restrain his anger. He's able to deal gently, we would say. It's a beautiful concept. He's able to deal gently because he knows the weakness. He's, he's one of them. Right? That's, that's part true of us. Right? We can deal gently with one another because we're cut out of the same cloth. We, we know our own sin and our tendencies. So with the high priest. So he wasn't special that way. He wasn't chosen because he was more holy necessarily than any of the others. But it allowed him to have this capacity to deal gently. Now again, why would he say that? You don't find that explicit description anywhere in the Old Testament. It's true. He's just reasoning. But why would he say it? He's connecting you back to chapter 4, verse 15, what he said. You can see the language. It's very similar. When we talked about Christ as high priest, he says, we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. He can sympathize with our weakness. Now, that's another one of those words built off of pathos. A little different. Sympatheo. Suffer with. Identify with. A little different, and yet there's a similarity that, yes, Christ can deal gently with us, but now let's think. He's trying to connect us back to human weakness in Christ, so here's, he's similar, and yet he's different, so let me just give that compare and contrast here. Christ, as one without sin, although tempted, 
Christ can deliver us from sin and temptation. So Christ, we saw last week, he experiences human frailty. He knows what it is to be a human being, to live in that kind of frailty, that kind of weakness. But never, never sinful weakness. He was not clothed with weakness in the same sense as the high priest in the Old Testament because we're told, although he was tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin. And so his relation to us, the sinner, those who are ignorant and go astray, is not simply that he can deal gently. He does deal gently, but he is sympatheo, sympathetic. We saw last week, that means more than just he can relate, it means he can deliver. He can help. That's the idea of sympathetic in the New Testament, is not only this feeling of compassion or pity or sorrow or connectedness, but able to give help, to give relief. So he's able to come to our aid. That's not true of the high priest in the Old Testament. He could deal gently, he could relate because he was himself a sinner, but he could do nothing to overcome our sinful condition. But this high priest, oh, he can relate because he was tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin, therefore, he can deliver us, deliver us from our weakness and sin. Much greater. Again, we'll see more of this Next week as he unfolds that. Number three, here's the third description or qualification of the high priest. Number three, his responsibility. His responsibility. His, his chief role and obligation. Now we saw it already at the end of verse one that he's appointed to represent us in order to, here's his responsibility, to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. But then he says it again in verse three. Because of it, he is obligated. This is his responsibility. He is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins. As for the people, so also for himself. So what's his responsibility? To offer sacrifices for the sins of the people as well as for himself. Again, I said it earlier. This is the chief responsibility of the high priest. To make atonement for sin through sacrifices. That's how God prescribed it. This is how you will make atonement. These prescribed sacrifices, these burnt offerings, these various sacrifices you will make atonement for. Now I think behind verse 3 is the day of atonement. Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. Because in verse 3, what the writer's trying to highlight here is not just his responsibility to make atonement for sin in general, but for his own sin. His own sin. Do you see the connection between verse 2 and 3? He himself is clothed with weakness, and because of it, he is obligated to offer sins, not just for the people, but for himself. His emphasis is on because the high priest is clothed with a sinful weakness, he has to offer sacrifices for himself, for his own sins. 
And that's his point of emphasis. And he emphasizes that, I think, by alluding back to the Day of Atonement and reversing the order of the offering. Remember, the Day of Atonement, we'll say much about this in the book of Hebrews. I think almost always, as the writer of Hebrews is thinking of high priest making offering, he's thinking the Day of Atonement. This is the unique role of the high priest. No other priest, as I described it earlier, could enter behind the veil. Once a year, right, in the seventh month, this holy day, Yom Kippur, could the high priest enter. But remember how he had to enter that whole ceremony. You can read it, Leviticus 16. I encourage you to read it. All the dress and the purity, all the symbolism. But remember what he had to do first? There was a bull for a burnt offering. He had to take that, offer it up, and then take blood for his own sin. That's what he had to do first. He had to walk in behind the veil with that censer, right? Shield the presence of God. That's the imagery here, the incense. And then he had to sprinkle blood for his own sin and then come back out and then those two goats and take blood. Then he had to do it again for the people to make atonement. And so it starts in that order, first for his own sin and then for the sin of the people. Here, our author is kind of reversing that. His highlight is on he has to do it here for his own sin. That's, that's his emphasis, his own sin. So for the people and for his own sin is how he emphasizes that. Hmm. Because he's a sinner. So, so right here, right here, we're beginning to hint, he's beginning to show the ineffectiveness and the insufficiency of this high priesthood. God's intended ineffectiveness and inefficiency of this high priesthood. How, how can he be, how can he represent the people if he himself is just one of the people and is equally a sinner? And he has to offer sacrifice for his own sin. So again, compare, contrast with Christ. Hopefully you're anticipating where he's going in this letter. Christ, here it is, who is without sin, offers one sufficient sacrifice for God's people, not for himself. No need. He doesn't have to offer first a sacrifice for himself and then for the people. He would not be the high priest if he had to do that. Again, pointing to the ineffectiveness of that Old Testament. How could that take away sin if the one offering is a sinner himself? So now this becomes one of the major emphases in this book as he unfolds the high priesthood of Christ. He'll say, say it this way in chapter 7, verse 27, speaking of Jesus, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because he did once for all when he offered up himself. He doesn't need to do that and he doesn't need to do it every year or every day because he offered one sacrifice, and then we're going to learn that stunning truth that this high priest is the sacrifice. That's just going to blow all our categories, right? It's going to blow them up. The high priest is the sacrifice, the one without sin. So that's where he's going, and we'll enjoy it because it is precious. Fourth one, last one. His divine appointment. So last kind of description, qualification of the Old Testament high priest. His divine 
appointment. Verse 4, no one, no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So I'll say it this way. God alone calls and appoints the high priest, starting with Aaron. God alone calls and appoints the high priest, starting with Aaron. This is God's institution. This isn't mankind trying to invent ways we think we can approach God, although it is so fascinating throughout all of history, all the various cultures, whatever their version of God is, almost all of them have some kind of priesthood. There's some kind of sense, some kind of need that we've got to be right with God, and I don't think we can do it. We need to appoint someone that can do that. But they didn't come up with this. God instituted it, and they didn't just have a popular vote say, who wants to be high priest? Any takers, right? God called and appointed. So he said in verse 1, he's appointed on behalf of men. Now we know who appointed him. God did. No one just volunteers. No one takes the honor. Do you see that? No one takes the honor to himself. And what an honor it is. Imagine to be the one person in the people of Israel to draw near to God in this symbolic way, to represent the people. What an honor. No one just volunteers. No one takes it on himself. God not only institutes priesthood, but he calls and sets apart the high priest. So he said, I want this tribe Levi out of all the tribes. They're going to be the priest, and I want one family. And he starts with Aaron, and he sets him apart. And there's a whole ritual for setting him apart symbolically. He's symbolically declaring him as holy. Now, he's not holy in himself. Remember what Aaron did? Not long after they got this Institution of the priesthood makes a golden calf. Remember that? He's not holy in himself, but he's symbolically holy. There's a whole chapter. I'm going to put up a little picture here I've used in the past of, of the dress of the high priest. What he looks like. It's a little small there, but there's a whole chapter in the Bible on how they dress. Every bit of it, symbolic. Again, he didn't just decide, ah, today is shorts day in the temple, right, or casual Saturday, right? It's, uh, you're a dress just like this, and every part of that dress is symbolic. And again, part of his representation, he's representing God to the people, the people to God. He's bearing that breastplate, all of it. I don't have time to go through all of the symbolism, but the idea is he's set apart as holy. God calls him, and God sets him apart. No one just takes it. Do you, again, just, that's why it's still good to read the Old Testament and hear these images and stories. Do you remember that other story in the book of Numbers when there was a group of men who said, we want to be high priest? Remember that? Aaron, why, why do you, you think you're better than us? Right, remember that? Number 16, Korah and his cohorts. You're no better. We want to be high priest. And God God came, and Moses, Moses was angry. You've gone far enough, you sons of Korah. Let's, let's have a test. You guys all get censers in your hands and come before the Lord. And the Lord was ready to, it says, consume the entire nation of Israel. 
over this issue. Moses, Aaron, intercede. He doesn't. But he consumes all 250 of these men. The earth opens and swallows them. You want to be high priest? God calls. Right? And then that chapter's followed where Aaron's rod buds, and he's the one I call. It's Aaron. It starts with Aaron, and then it will be the descendants of Aaron from that point on. Now, what about Christ? Let me finish. Christ, this is the transition point, verse 4 to verse 5. This is where we'll pick it up next week. Christ is appointed as high priest with an oath by God, but not according to the order of Aaron. Christ, Christ didn't take it on himself. He wasn't just a man who volunteered, but he's appointed with an oath by God, but not a descendant of Aaron. And this is what our author must explain. He must justify this from the Bible. And that's where he's going. That's what he's going to do. So we're going to pick it up there in verse 5 next week and begin to see the contrast with Christ. Oh, he's similar to the high priest. He's, there are types of him, but he's so much superior. And it's what we need. So I, I finish where I started. We have a great high priest, Jesus the Son of God. I pray that that becomes really precious to you. That you sense in your heart, I, I need a hyper. I, I'm not approaching God on my own terms with my own offering. I need one representing me perfectly. And we have him. Do you have him? Do you have him? We have him. And because... Again, back to chapter 4, verse 16. We can draw near with confidence, cleansed, no condemnation, no judgment. We can draw near, and right now he's ready to help in time of need. What a priest we have. We'll see more of him next week. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we, we are stunned at the gift of your son Oh, Holy Spirit, open, open our eyes to behold Christ, the risen, reigning high priest. And we have every confidence now to draw near. I pray for everyone here just to be enjoying, believing this precious truth for themselves. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.